0: Welcome to the Revelation study. You know, last week we looked at an introduction to the study of Revelation and we learned that it's an apocalyptic book, the same genre as the book of Enoch, which believers in the first century were familiar with. We know that because it's quoted in the book of Jude. And the fact is, as we're going to see tonight, the book of Enoch will help us understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation. We also found that Revelation is not a road map for the future. It's not a timeline of future events. In fact, as we're going to see tonight, the order of the book is not chronological at all. We also found that it's a letter to the seven churches. Verse 1 said, John, to Messiah's seven communities in Asia. And so understand that we're actually reading a letter, we're actually reading someone else's mail. And so... If we're going to understand, we have to understand this letter as they would have understood it in the first century. We have to look at it from a first century perspective. And the fact is, we have to look at all the Messianic writings from that perspective. As we saw last week, they heard the book of Enoch. And so they were familiar with the symbolism of the book of Enoch and also the symbolism of John's book. Their familiarity with Enoch is something that leaves most believers at a disadvantage because it's not something that we think to read and understand. And it's for this reason that we're going to use the book of Enoch to our advantage. So I'm going to start with verse 4 of Revelation 1. It says, John, to Messiah's seven communities in Asia, grace to you and shalom from him who is and who was and who is to come as well as from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Messiah Yeshua, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of Kohanim, to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever. Amen. And so here we have something that we should probably identify because spirits are going to come up over and over again in the book of Revelation. We're going to find many modern translations of these angels, who these angels are. We find that many opinions. I don't have time to look at them all, but we're going to look at one of the most popular, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The ruach of Adonai will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and insight, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of Adonai. So this is one of the popular opinions. However, there's a big problem here. There's only six spirits. Really, we want to understand what these first century recipients of the letter would have understood by these seven spirits before God. Well, first we can assume that since They are before the throne of God, that these are not your everyday run-of-the-mill angels, but these are archangels. And the term archangel literally means head or chief angel. In the hierarchy of angels, these are the heads, so to speak. Now, if we want to know who these angels are, and who these seven churches would have thought these angels are, I think we have to just look at the book of Enoch. As we're going to find seven archangels listed there. And again, we're going to find who these angels would have meant to the first century churches. It occurs in chapter 20 of the book of Enoch, verses 1 through 8. And these are the names of the holy angels who watch Uriel, one of the holy angels who's over the world and over Tartarsus. Raphael, one of the holy angels who is over the spirits of men. Raguel, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance on the world of luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels, to wit, he, that he is set over the best part of mankind and over chaos. Sarah one of the holy angels who is set over the spirits who sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who's over paradise and the serpents and the caribbean. Remiel, one of the holy angels who God set over those who rise. So I don't know if I exactly agree with the attributes that Enoch attributes to these angels, but these were actually angels. This is what the first century churches would have understood as archangels. These are archangels. And why else would we think that the book of Enoch is right here? Well, something interesting, if you look at the names of these angels, if you remember, Jude quotes the book of Enoch in verses 14 and 15. However, in chapter 9, he actually mentions one of these archangels, Michael. Also, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 mentions Michael as well. So understand that angels are going to come up over and over again, and they are called spirits. These are before the throne. These are archangels. Other places, they're called angels. Other places, they're called spirits. So, Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 says this. Then the seven angels holding the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And then again in chapter 15, we read this. Then I saw another great and wonderful sign in the heavens. Seven angels who have seven plagues. The last one. For with them, God's wrath is finished. So, not only do we have... Uh, angels, but this number seven is going to come up over and over in the book of Revelation as well. The fact is, the number seven occurs 55 times in 30 verses in the book of Revelation. Now, I think we know what the recipients of the letter would have thought about as these angels. And so I'm going to move to verse seven, and it speaks of the Son of Man. And it says this, Look, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Yes and amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Adonai Elohim, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so what we have here in verse 7 is an inescapable reference to Daniel chapter 7 with the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. But even more than that, it also is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says this, "...I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, when they will look toward me to whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn." So, the real problem here is that the passage in Zechariah, God pours out a spirit of supplication that we don't see in the description in Revelation. And the other difference is, not just Israel, but all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. And we can take this a couple of ways. First is that the nations are going to mourn because he's coming to judge them because they rejected him. And all that's left for them is judgment. The second way we can look at it, and I like this way a little better, that when it says the nations, it means Yeshua's followers of the nations. And it says they will mourn in the same way that the people of Israel will mourn. Though they are followers of Yeshua, though they know Yeshua, they're still going to mourn. And let me tell you why I say that. It's from personal experience. I remember a few years ago, I was invited to a movie about the crucifixion. And they were inviting pastors from all over the city to promote the movie. And so I went, and the movie house was actually filled with pastors and their wives. Men who know the Bible, men and women who knew the Bible. And the movie was a graphic depiction of the beating and the crucifixion of Messiah. Every pastor, I looked around, and every pastor in the place was weeping. So it may be that is what's meant here. I don't think any of us can really imagine what Yeshua went through. But when we come to grips with that, the fact is, and the fact that it was for us that he suffered that way, I think we're all going to do a little weeping and mourning in the kingdom as well. It also says that he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And we should all uh, know what the clouds are. Yeshua is taken to heaven in the clouds after his resurrection. And what do the angels say to the disciples? They say, the same Yeshua was taken into heaven. He will come back in the same way. So Yeshua tells the high priest, he also tells the high priest that the Son of Man is returning on the clouds of heaven. But what are the clouds of heaven? Well, again, the book of Enoch tells us something, uh, and Jude quotes it. I'll read it from Jude. It was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord is coming with myriads of his Kedeshim, his holy ones. And so I think that we can assume, at least I assume, that the clouds of heaven are Yeshua's holy ones. And let's read on. Verse 9, John, your brother and fellow partaker with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Yeshua was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Yeshua. I was in the Ruach on the day of the Lord and I heard behind me a loud voice that of a trumpet saying, write what you will see in in a scroll, send it to the Messiah's seven communities to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so here again, we read of the seven messianic communities that this was sent to, and they are eastern congregations. They're not western congregations like Rome, but they're eastern congregations, and that's important. History tells us that these eastern congregations were Torah observant. Thereby, they kept the seventh-day Sabbath. And we can find one bit of really important information about these Eastern congregations in the writings of the church fathers. And this one is from Epiphanius. It reads this way. They dedicate themselves to the law. For after having heard the name of Jesus and having seen the divine signs performed by the acts of the apostles, they also believed in Jesus. However, everyone called the Christians Nazarenes, as I said before, that they called them by this name because of Christ, since our Lord himself was also called Jesus the Nazarene, as it appears from the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Here's what's important. But actually, they remain wholly Jewish and nothing else, for they do not use only the New Testament, but also the Old, like the Jews. So this is speaking of those Eastern congregations. And the reason I bring this up is because of the teaching that when it says the Lord's Day, they're talking about Sunday. In most translations of Revelation, it reads this way, and I put both of them up here for you. The one is from the NIV, I believe. Notice it says the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And the other one is the TLV, which we read earlier. I was in the Ruach on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like that of a trumpet. And so what is the difference Well, most Christians read the Lord's Day and think it's Sunday, and most commentaries on this verse help them in their misconception. However, that's not reading it as it was understood in the first century communities. It says, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. How much more sense does that make when we look at the book of Revelation and the topics of the letter are the day of the Lord. And so much of what we're going to speak of in this book is happening on the day of the Lord. Also, as I said, he's writing to Eastern congregations, which we just read kept the seventh day Sabbath, and so Sunday would not be an option for these people. Furthermore, as I said, much of the topic here is the day of the Lord. It may be very well, John means he was in the Spirit. And the vision is of the day of the Lord. So let's read on in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold minarets. In the midst of the Minerot, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe down to his feet, with a belt wrapped around his chest. And so we have two terms here that really we need to understand, and uh, most Bibles are going to say seven gold lampstands, which could be almost anything, but when we use the word menorah as the TLV, it's speaking of seven Minerot that we can identify, and I put a picture up here for you. It's the Temple Minerot. It's the Temple Menorah. It's called the light of the world, and it sat in the holy place, and it was the sole source of light for the holy place in the temple, Exodus chapter 25 verse 37 says you are also to make the seven lamps for it and set the lamps up to shed light over the space before it. So understand its purpose was to light the space in front of it and the holy place was the room just before the holy of holies. I put a diagram up here for you and the red arrow of course points to the holy place and the blue arrow Points to the Holy of Holies. And this menorah lights the way to the Holy of Holies. And if you've been in the temple study, you know the Holy of Holies is a shadow of the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, or we could say the gateway of the kingdom of the Garden of Eden or the kingdom of heaven. And the ark within that Holy of Holies is seen as the throne of God. You know, anciently, when you go to Israel, they had a gate in the cities. And in that gate, there was a throne for the elders or the king would sit on that throne, and they could determine who could enter and who would not. If you go to Israel, specifically tell Dan, they have a gate uh, of the city, and in that gate, you can see the throne. They put a throne there as an example of this. Another one you can go to, if you go to Megiddo, Megiddo, you find they have a gateway that leads to another gateway. You have an outer gateway and an inner gateway. And so if you were coming into the city, you would go through the first gate and they would close it, which trapped you between the gates. And there would be archers on the wall above. And if the king allowed you to go in, he determined that you were a good person and he allowed you to go in, that was good for you. But if he decided you were a threat of some kind, or he didn't like you in some way, you had a serious problem because you're standing in this little gateway with archers above you, ready to take you out. So the Holy of Holies and the Ark are a shadow of God's throne and the entrance to the kingdom. The one sitting on the throne decides who can enter and who will not. The menorah is called the light of the world and it's the only light in the holy place and it actually lights the way to the holy of holies or as we have pointed out, it's a shadow of the kingdom of God. That's why Yeshua called himself the light of the world and that's why John in chapter 8, Yeshua says that he is the light of the world because he's the way, the truth, and the light. and No man goes to the Father except through him. Now, we're going to be told in a few verses that, indeed, these men represent the seven messianic communities, or Yeshua's congregations. And so, we know that the lampstands, what they look like, and their purpose was to light the way to Yeshua and the kingdom of God. And John tells us what they represent in verse 19. I'm, we'll read it here, but we will come back to it later. Therefore, write down what you have seen, what is, and what will happen after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven gold Minerot, seven stars are the angels of Messiah's seven communities and the seven Minerot are the seven communities. And so the Minerot are the seven Messianic communities that we're going to talk about next week. And uh, these Minerot are their ability and their calling by God to light the way to Yeshua And the kingdom of God we're supposed to be witnesses in other words we Yeshua told us we are lights of the world we also learn here what we have is the seven stars they're really seven angels over the seven communities now they're not the same as the seven spirits that we spoke of before the throne they were archangels and what we have here are ministering angels they're ministering to those seven communities it would seem that below them there are angels. These archangels have angels below them. And we find that if we look in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels, making war against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fought. Okay, so these angels are under the archangels, but, and they are ministering angels. And now I'm going to read from chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5. It says, but this I have against you, that you have forsaken your first love. Remember then from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place unless you repent. Okay, so every congregation has an angel over it and they are symbolized by the menorah. The congregations are symbolized by the menorah. And they are, because we're lights to the world, they're to light the way. There is a point, from what I'm reading here, there's a point at which God may remove a congregation's ability to light the way for those seeking the kingdom. And that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Because if a congregation isn't able to lead others to Messiah, then what good is that congregation? Or if they lead others to someone who is not the true Messiah, what good is that congregation? Now, we're going to look at this congregation of Ephesus. That's what we were speaking of there. We're going to look at it in detail later. But it would seem to me that if a congregation gets so far off a base in their teaching or with their relationship with Yeshua, then the lampstands could be taken away. And the sad part of this is because it's spiritual and behind the veil, the members of the congregation wouldn't even know it was taken away. Let's read verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden minarets. In the midst of the minarets, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe down to his feet, with a golden belt wrapped around his chest. And notice that it says, one like the son of man. The son of man can have two meanings in Scripture. First, it can mean exactly what it says. In other words, a son of Adam. That word Adam, while it speaks of the name of the first man, is also a word that means man. And so we are all sons of Adam. We are all sons of man. The other meaning is what is meant here. And as we're going to see, it means that of a judge. And it's also a title for the Messiah. Verse 14 says, His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. And so no problem, this is the Son of Man, this is the Messiah we're talking about, and we're going to get to the description later, but for the rest of the lesson tonight, we're going to focus on the Son of Man. He's that important. We have to understand who is the Son of Man and what exactly does his title mean to those the letters being written to. Also, what aspect of Messiah's ministry does the Son of Man relate to? I don't know if you've noticed this, but each of Messiah's titles is some aspect of his ministry. The Lamb of God speaks of his death for the sins of the world. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It speaks of his lineage in Judah and his kingship and his might. He's the Son of David, again speaking of his kingship. He's the Messiah, his anointed. He is anointed by God. He's the one anointed to bring about God's redemption. But what about the Son of Man? What does that speak of? And so, what we need to know here is what would have come to John's mind and those the letters is written to when they heard Son of Man. He saw one like the Son of Man, and what came to his mind to make him say Son of Man instead of the Messiah or the Lamb of God? What came to his mind? that he would have said, I saw one like the Son of Man. Another place he's going to say, I saw the throne with a Lamb of God on the throne, looking like it had been slain. So why here does he say the Son of Man? Well, first it should take us to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so in this passage, we're told that he's been given authority over all the nations. He's given authority to judge the people's of the nations. And that judgment is going to be an everlasting judgment. And this is actually a description of Yeshua as he returned to heaven on the clouds after his resurrection. And it will, as we noted earlier, be the same way that he returns on the clouds of heaven. Daniel also speaks of the Son of Man in a similar way. He says in um, chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, I lifted my eyes and looked and and behold, a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz wrapped around his waist. His body was like yellow jasper, his face like flashing of lightning, his eyes like fiery torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sounds of his words like the roar of a multitude. And so the first thing that we learn here is that the Son of Man is, is a judge that will judge the nations. And if we look to the Son of Man in the book of Enoch, we're going to find much of the same things. And I put some quotes here from Enoch today, and uh, I, had, I took some out because of time, but it was getting a little long. But I put some quotes from Enoch in here, and I want you to pay special attention to them because there's a lot of people that will tell you, oh, you shouldn't read the book of Enoch. It's not Scripture. It's not this. Or it's not that. I was doing a study on the book of Enoch a few years ago, and someone who had come to the study went to his church and told his pastor that we were studying the book of Enoch. He said, oh, you should get out of there. Don't go to that place again. He says, that's not Scripture. More than half of the books in the Christian bookstore aren't Scripture either. But they can teach you. So anyway, Enoch 46, verse 27 says, And he sat on the throne of his glory, and the sum of judgment was given unto the Son of Man. And he caused the sinners to pass away and be destroyed from the face of the earth and those who have led the world astray. And so again, what we see from the book of Enoch is he's a judge. And in the book of Matthew, we're going to read Much the same thing, he's judging the wicked in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, it says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who practice lawlessness. They will throw them into a fiery furnace, and in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Those who have ears, let him hear. And so the Son of Man, again, is going to judge between the righteous and the wicked, sending the wicked to a fiery pit, and they're each going to receive their respective rewards. Another clue here is he says he's going to send out his angels, and so the Son of Man has authority over angels. Chapter 16, verse 27 of Matthew says, For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay everyone according to, to his deeds and i want you to note and remember here where it says he will come in his father's glory and again we're going to see that he's the judge here so in the first century when those in the messianic communities that this letter is sent to heard the son of man what they thought of immediately was a judge who's going to judge the people of the earth He's an end-time judge. He sits at the right hand of the Father to judge. He has authority to do so. And because he's at the right hand, he has authority over angels. And so John, being a disciple of Yeshua, sees a judge standing between the lampstands. And as we're going to see, his congregations in the midst of his congregations. He's in the midst. That means he's there to oversee the congregations. And as we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, he's about to admonish and judge those seven communities. Let's look at a few other sources. I want to look from an article from the Encyclopedia Judaica. And I'm reading this because this is a summation. This is somebody who wrote this article who had read the book of Enoch. He'd read commentaries. and So this is a summation of who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man has a superhuman heavenly sublimity. He is the cosmic judge at the end of time. Seated on the throne of God, he will judge the whole human race with the aid of heavenly hosts, consigning the just to blessedness and the sinners to the pit of hell. And he will execute the sentence he passes. Frequently, he is identified with the Messiah, as in the book of Enoch, chapters 37 and 41, and in Fourth Ezra. And so here we're told that he is identified with the Messiah... But look at how, what aspect of Yeshua's ministry does this title reveal? He's a judge of the whole human race, sitting on the throne of God. We'll look at what Enoch says about him in a moment, but I'm going to read on in this article, because we get some really interesting things here. Though in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were also messianic concepts, the concept of the Son of Man is also reflected in them. The eschatological figure occurring in the Thanksgiving scroll resembles or is identical with the Son of Man of other Jewish literature. In one of the fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Melchizedek figures as the judge at the end of time. In company with angels from on high, he will judge man and the wicked spirits of Belial. Thus, the son of man could even be identified with the biblical Melchizedek, according to mythological understanding. And so, in the Essene communities, the son of man, this judge is identified with Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And I have to tell you that I agree with that because I believe there's only one king of righteousness. And that is our Messiah, Yeshua. You know, many try to say that Melchizedek isn't, wasn't the Messiah, wasn't a pre-incarnate Messiah. But I believe that he was the pre-incarnate Messiah. And I believe Messiah Yeshua is Melchizedek. And it would seem to me that the Essenes kind of do it as well. A little farther we read. Thus, it seems that the concept preceded the final identification of the Son of Man with the Messiah, which became common at the end of the second temple period. It was also applied in the time of Jesus, who used to speak of the Son of Man as a heavenly judge, and it seems that finally he identified himself with this sublime figure. And so, in the time of Yeshua and John, the Son of Man was identified with these things. And so, when you see Yeshua call himself the Son of Man... You know which part of his ministry he's referring to. And John, being his disciple, sees a judge. The judge of the human race, preparing to judge the seven messianic communities that we're going to speak of in chapters 2 and 3. And he says, I saw one like the Son of Man. He sees one like the judge over all the earth. Now, I want to go to the book of Enoch again and look at what is said of the Son of Man. And remember that the book of Enoch predates the first century. It's quoted in the book of Jude. This is something that these believers were familiar with. 46 verses 4 and 5. The Lord of the spirits has chosen him, and he has destined him to be victorious before the Lord of the spirits in eternal uprightness. This son of man whom you have seen is the one... Who would remove kings and the mighty ones from their comfortable seats and the strong ones from their thrones? He shall loosen the reins of the strong and crush the teeth of the sinners. He shall dispose the kings from their thrones and kingdoms, for they do not extol and glorify him, neither do they obey him, the source of their kingship. And so he's a judge, he's a king. And understand, this is what those of the first century would have understood from the book of Enoch about the Son of Man. And we know that Enoch isn't scripture, but they held it in high regard. Okay, and so I want to go to chapter 48, verse 2. And I want you to be thinking about how close this is to the scriptures, because we can find these very things in the scriptures. At that hour, the Son of Man was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the Spirits before time, even before the creation of the sun and the moon, before the creation of the stars. He was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the Spirits. And some say Yeshua didn't pre-exist His coming, but the writer of Enoch didn't think that. He was with God before time, given His name before time. Well, if you look at Paul, he tells us exactly the same thing, and John tells us exactly the same thing in his gospel. Verse 3, he will become a staff for the righteous ones in order that they may lean on him and not fall. Amen for that, right? He is a light to the Gentiles, and he will become the hope of those who are sick in their hearts. And so these should sound familiar. I mean, you can go right to the book of Isaiah and read that. And that's because, as I said last week, these men who wrote these books, they had a firm grasp on the scriptures. Amen? And most of this stuff you can... Go right back to the scriptures and find it as well. Enoch is quoted in the New Testament, and we could compare this, like I said, these statements with Isaiah. So he's the judge of the earth, the king of the earth, the king of righteousness, and he's going to consign the wicked to their fate, Gehenna, or hell. He will reward the righteous, and these are themes, again, that would have come to John's mind as he saw this person and the reason he calls him one like the Son of Man. Now, before we get to Revelation, he tells us something that we have not seen in our description of the Son of Man or in the book of Enoch. It says, Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. I want you to think about this. Remember the Essenes thought the Son of Man was the priest Melchizedek. And here, what we see is the Son of Man is dressed the way a priest would dress, particularly the high priest. We're told... That not only did the first century community see the Son of Man as the judge, but also the high priest. And we saw that the Essenes saw him as Melchizedek. When Messiah speaks of the Son of Man, there's one other aspect, and it equates to his being high priest. And We find it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up take your mat, and go home. Let's look at Matthew verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. And so he's coming with his Father's glory. And I read that again because in verse 14 it says, His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow. Those verses we could take right back to the book of Daniel chapter 7. It says this, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his hair and his head were white like wool. His throne was a flaming fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. This is a description in Daniel, but who's it describing? It's describing Adonai. It's describing the Father. It's exactly what we see Yeshua looking like as well, because he's coming in his Father's glory. Let's read 14 and 15, and it says, And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So this, too, is from the book of Daniel. We'll read it again, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. And I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like a flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice was like the sound of a multitude and so we learn something here comparing these verses in Daniel and his voice like the sound of a multitude and revelation says his voice like the sound of rushing waters and what we learn is that rushing waters or the sound of a multitude like that can be an army because remember he's coming with his he's coming with his saints And it's important to understand because later in the book of Revelation, we're going to see armies described just in this way. Notice it says his feet are bronze. And it's because he's the judge. At least that would be what comes to John's mind because he would be familiar with Micah, chapter 4. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations you will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. And so bronze feet are for breaking down kingdoms on the earth. And that's why we see them on the Son of Man. Verse 16, his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came forth a sharp two-edged sword. So his right hand are the seven stars, which we know are the angels, seven angels of the congregation. And the Greek word there is ekklesia, it means assembly. These, as I spoke of earlier, are angels assigned to these seven messianic communities. And as I said earlier, these communities, they really have a need for angels, ministering angels over them. And this is also why I think it's important to belong to a congregation. And I think it's why the Hebrews would tell us, let us not give up the meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, I believe that he shows them in the right hand to show his authority and that they are at his direction, that they are his and that they are in his hand because he watches over the seven churches and out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. What is a sword? It's the instrument of judgment. And if we go to the expulsion of Adam in the garden, what do we read? It says, after he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the garden, carabine, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The sword guards the way to the tree of life, it judges who can enter, it cuts down those who can't, and so we see in the assemblies of Yeshua are sheltered in the right hand of the Son of Man, and out of his mouth comes a sword to judge the rest of the world. He's the judge, and his judgments are always righteous, and we'll look more at this later But for this week. Again, we're focusing on this vision of the Son of Man. But I want you to keep that at the front of your mind for a little while. Verse 16, his face was like the sun shining at full strength. And so again, we're seeing here the Father's glory. He's coming in the Father's glory. And so what we have here is what has been described for us many times before in visions in parts of vision and in prophecies of the Messiah. He's the judge of awesome authority. He'll judge each and every one on the face of the earth who has ever been on the face of the earth with eternal judgment. And this is what would have come to John's mind when he said the Son of Man. And if you don't believe me, all we have to do is look at his response. His response is in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So at the sight of the Son of Man, in his Father's glory, this judge... What does it do? It makes him fall down on his feet as though dead. Now think of this for a minute, folks. This is the beloved apostle, the one who reclined with Yeshua at the Last Supper. And what does he do? He falls on his face as though dead. The sight of the judge of all the earth, the Son of Man. And now you begin to see the difference in titles. The difference in the title between the Son of Man and the Lamb of God. And this is the greatest picture of judgment, I think, in the scriptures because we have to pool a little bit of information. The first bit from above the seven stars are the seven stars in his right hand, are the seven churches. He holds those seven churches in his right hand, and out of his mouth comes a sword. He's dressed as a judge, the high priest, and John has been taken to the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment. And John falls on his face as though dead. Yeshua reaches out with his right hand and touches him, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first, the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I think to really understand what's going on here, we have to look at the festival of Yom Kippur, because Yom Kippur is a shadow of the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment. And particularly, there's a ceremony held in the temple. And it involves a high priest and two goats. We don't have time to go into the whole thing, but I'm just going to give you the short version. Two goats are brought to the high priest. One is placed on his right, one is placed on his left. Another priest brings him a box with two lots in it. He draws out these lots. And on one lot is written, La Adonai, or in English, for the Lord. On the other lot is written, Azazel. And Azazel in the book of Enoch is a demon who inhabits the wilderness, and he's someone who sounds very much like Belial or the false Messiah. And it just so happens that the lot for the Lord always came up in the right hand. The Talmud tells us it was one of the miracles of the temple that the lot for Azazel always came up in the left, and the lot for the Lord always came up in the right. Now, as I said, two goats are brought, and they're placed one on his right, one on his left. He draws these lots, and the one on the right who's for the Lord is sent to be offered to the Lord. The one on the left, Azazel, is sent to Azazel, which, as I said, is a term for a demon that inhabits the wilderness. And when you read about him, he sounds very much like Belial or a false messiah or the enemy of God, at least. And so the goat on the left is taken to the wilderness, to a place of Azazel, and he's pushed off a cliff, And he's dashed against the rocks below and he becomes food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And it's a picture of the followers of the adversary of God and their fate is death and to become food for the birds of the air. But the one on the right, that goat is taken, he's offered and his blood, or we could say his life because the life is in the blood, is taken into the Holy of Holies, which as I said, Earlier is a shadow to the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. And this is a shadow of the followers of Yeshua. They're given their reward, life in the kingdom of heaven. And what we're seeing here is a picture of the judgment of the righteous and the wicked on the day of the Lord. And let's go to Matthew because he confirms this for us. He speaks of much the same thing in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so those on his right enter into the kingdom. And then in verse 41, he tells us of the left. Then he will also say to those on the left, Go away from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And here we get a picture of the judgment of the righteous. And it's much the same theme as we saw in the temple with the two goats. One on the right, one on the left. In our verse in Revelation, John falls down on his face as though dead. And Yeshua reaches out with his right hand and says, do not fear. And what we're seeing here, I believe, is a shadow of the resurrection of the righteous. And it should also be a blessing for you if you know the Messiah, because you know that even if you die before the events that we're going to read about, Yeshua is going to raise you up with his right hand. And all's going to go well for you. Verse 19. And here, this is important in understanding the book of Revelation. And this is why I'm reading it again. Therefore, write down what you have seen, what is, and what will happen after these things. And so he closes the chapter with this. One more verse after this. He closes the chapter with this. And this is going to answer some questions for us and why people are so confused about the book of Revelation. Because we get an amazing piece of information here that most just kind of read by. It says, what you have seen, what you now see, and what will take place later. Most people miss this and think that what they're going to read in the book of Revelation is all about the future. That's not what's meant. What's meant is that what he's seen is what will take place later. Some of what he's seen is, and that's no doubt. However, some of what we're going to read has taken place. Some of what we're going to read is taking place. And some of what we're going to read is going to take place later. And so, like I tried to get to last week, this is not a chronological book. We're going to read things of the past, we're going to read things of what's going on now and in the future, and they're all kind of mixed together. Not, it's not chronological. And so he's the judge, and he's standing between the seven lampstands, and then in verse 20 it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold mineral, the seven stars are the angels of Messiah's seven communities, and the menorahs are the seven communities. And so he's going to judge the world, but before he does that, he's going to judge the house of the Lord. In the next two chapters, he's going to go into his judgment of these seven messianic communities. And why is that? Because judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Right? So that's the study for tonight. We can bring the worship team back up.